大家晚上好，这里是正在为您。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello, I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for joining me today. I want to introduce the new head of Merrick's, Frank Pike, who joined Merrick's at the beginning of August. He is the former director of the Leiden Asia Center in the Netherlands, and in the past also founded and directed the Oxford China Center. He's the author of several books on China, most recently Knowing China: A 21st Century Guide. Frank has studied, observed, and analyzed China's developments ever since he first arrived in Beijing as a student in the early 1980s, and he is with me now here in the Merrick Studio in Berlin. Welcome, Frank. So, why China? What is it that fascinates you about China and its development over the years? Well, my original fascination with、uh, China was、uh, not so much China as a culture. It was China as a society with a lived-in socialist system, and that is something I really wanted to understand. And oddly enough, that motivation, that drive, is still with me. I still want to know what socialism is, what socialism means, and and where it's going. Not as a, an abstract ideology or a set of ideas, but rather as something that makes a society tick, or sometimes, as we know, not tick. Now, is China then a socialist country? Well, of course, that's exactly uh, what my uh, latest book that you refer to is also about, and it depends, of course, primarily on how you define socialism. If you define socialism, as I said just now, as a set of ideologies and something that defines a future utopian society that we should work towards, then I would say no, socialism doesn't exist in China anymore. And in fact, socialism as such was probably dead for a very, very long time already, not only in China but also elsewhere in the world. However, socialism as a way of thinking about government and thinking about how the population should relate to government, and of course, more specifically and importantly, the place of a totalitarian, dictatorial, authoritarian, Leninist party. Then, as such, socialism is alive and well in China. In fact, you could argue, and I argue at any rate, that as such, socialism is alive as never before. The Chinese Communist Party is、uh, larger than it's ever been. It is more powerful than it's ever been. It's better organized. It's better educated. It is more professional. Than it's ever been in the past, and as such, it's much more than in the past equipped to rule China. And such a socialist communist party is therefore also something that will continue to define the future of Chinese society and its development. It is, to my mind, something that is very, very unlikely to fall. Or、uh, evolve into something radically different, as still many people in the West seem to believe. It will, of course, change. That is undoubtedly so. But the fundamental premises on which it is was founded, and which still define it, namely Leninist principles, principles of organization, mainly principles of discipline, principles of dedication to the party. These principles apply. As ever before, and will continue, I think, to apply to the Communist Party in the future. 
Now, as you said, the Communist Party seems stronger and more confident than ever under Xi Jinping. But how is that possible? I mean, we're talking about a rigid political system within a dynamic society and a rapidly changing world. But the system in China basically hasn't changed. Well, that is, I think, what most of my work has been about. Um, as many people of my age, I started thinking of the Chinese socialist system as something that should eventually crumble on the weight of its own contradictions. And we saw in 1989 with the movement and its suppression then clear evidence that that was inevitably going to happen. Uh, I think that uh, the reforms uh, since 1989 has proven me and most of my contemporaries absolutely wrong in that respect. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party has been able to pull itself away from the precipice, has been able to uh, rethink and reinvent itself, and has with that also become a much more powerful ruling force. Uh, and this contradiction that uh, many people in the West in particular continue to point to between a dynamic society, a dynamic by now we could call it a capitalist economy, on the one hand, and a socialist, Leninist, uh, communist party on the other. That contradiction is, to my mind, uh, and that's a conclusion I've reached over the many years that uh, after 1989, is actually more apparent than real. It's um, not real in the sense that the Communist Party, despite the fact that the fundamental premises on which it was founded are still applying to what it does, has been able to learn and incorporate uh, many of the things that uh, are considered best practice of govern governance elsewhere in the world, also in the West. So it's a party that within the overall framework of its own uh, Leninist system has been able to be extremely uh, adaptable and being able to modernize itself in many regards. Now, you can think about that what you want, but the weight of the evidence is that that has generated a system that is viable. But the other thing is that, of course, the apparent contradiction between capitalism and socialism actually doesn't apply because the market economy continues to be very much informed by fundamental ideas about the steering capacity of the party in the economy, the role of state-owned enterprise, but also the symbiotic bond between the government and capitalist private and state-owned firms. The other thing is, which comes out of my work uh, on the Communist Party itself, which I actually find more interesting, <laughs> um, is that market principles also apply within the Communist Party itself. One of the things that I found during my research on uh, Communist Party uh, schools and also the training of party officials is that that training is also uh, based on ideas of competition, market competition, uh, between uh, different providers of training. Uh, and that's just one small but important example of how the Communist Party, very unreflexively, so without really thinking about it too much, has been able to use the dynamism that the market generates to modernize its own Leninist governing principles. And that's quite remarkable. But then uh, Xi Jinping, um, whom you've mentioned once, um, is he then a product of that? Or is his more authoritarian approach, is that one of the reasons why the party is so strong now and uh, stronger than it was maybe uh, five, six or seven years ago? Xi Jinping is somebody who, on the one hand, does things that are different from what his predecessors did. 
On the other hand, he very much also builds on uh, what has happened uh, before he came to power in 2012. So the party was already for at least 10 years before he came to power, uh, strengthening itself, building itself, modernizing itself, and he has continued that process. The only thing that you can say about him is that from the very onset, in fact, before the, he came to power in 2012, it was very clear that he was somebody who believed in the party with a zeal that was uh, unusual, let's put it this way. Uh, so to him, the party is, I think, still both the most important means and the most important end at the same time. For him, the party is really what it's about. And I think he'll do anything to strengthen the party, to keep the party in power, to make the party better. That is really his uh, objective. We should also not forget that many of the things that he does, practically speaking, uh, may seem authoritarian, but they're also extremely modern. I mean, here in Marx we've studied, uh, for instance, the social credit system a lot, and you can simply dis dismiss that as an authoritarian mistake. But you could also look at this as the application and the deployment of modern e-based uh, principles to create a better governed socialist society. So to use new technologies of governance that, to a very large extent, also borrowed from the West for the purposes of strengthening socialist governance. But one could argue that China uses e-technology to set up an almost Orwellian system of surveillance and control. Well, that's probably exactly what I mean. Although surveillance is not anymore what it was, of course, in the Maoist era, uh, it is much more clearly uh, circumscribed, it's much more limited to particular fields of operation, particular fields of behavior. Uh, freedoms on the whole are, of course, much greater than they ever were. But the whole idea of what socialist governance means, i.e. that the government has a, uh, a natural right to interfere in the private lives of individuals if that, that, those lives or the way they're being led run against the principles of socialism or against the principles of how a good society should be run, that natural right that the Communist Party has or thinks it has is simply uh, strengthened and the, the, the execution of that is made better because of these new technologies, for instance, the social credit system. So it uses new technologies for essentially all purposes. And that also explains, I think, in part at least, why many Chinese citizens don't have so many problems with the social credit system, because they say, well, they're doing what they've always been doing, they're just doing it better, right? Uh, so there's not something Orwellian about it, because if anything, Chinese society was always Orwellian anyway. So where do you see China heading under Xi Jinping and the CCP? Are there many pitfalls? I think there are loads of pitfalls, of course. And uh, when you read Chinese policy documents, they also make them clear, I think. Uh, they say very clearly what the challenges are ahead, what the main potholes on the road in the road are. But unlike the situation in the 80s and 90s and even 2000s, these are talked about in very almost technocratic terms. They are perceived as solvable problems. Uh, so if you do the right thing at the right time as a government, then all these problems can be solved, can be addressed. They're not fundamental challenges anymore. So they see them very much as uh, firmly in the driving seat and, of course, having to steer to the right, steer to the left a little bit, perhaps go through straight through the middle sometimes, uh, having to adjust, having to learn. But they think they've got it sorted out. They've got it, they've got it figured out. 
uh, what to do. That's what they believe. And is that justified, that confidence? To a very large extent it is, but I think the mistake that perhaps I, but also a lot of other people in the West and in China tend to make, is that I don't believe that Xi Jinping is as firmly in power as he makes us believe. He would like, of course, to project this, this, this image of the all-powerful, ultimate, supremely confident leader. But recent sort of rumors and murmurs within the Communist Party indicate that more is afoot than that. And I think he's made a bit of a mistake in the last party congress and also, of course, during the, the, um, the, end, the National People's Congress sessions in March of going a little bit too far. Going a little bit too far to the taste of many people in China, but more importantly in the Chinese Communist Party who see what he does, whether they're right or not, is another matter, but see what it does as a little bit too much uh, reminiscent of Mao Zedong, uh, a little too totalitarian, uh, a little too personal also. And I think many people would like to backpedal because they also see what the negative aspects of that may, that may be. Not so much that it's just a one-man rule, but rather that he does things that are not in Chinese interest. For instance, the very confident way in which he projects Chinese power abroad now is something that I don't think serves China's interest at this particular moment particularly well. There's overreach, there's overconfidence, there is biting off a little bit more than you can chew and swallow. And I think many people in China think that as well, and try to find for ways to express this without immediately falling from power. Uh, so there's more going on than uh, is apparent, and I think Xi Jinping will have a hard time, I think, to actually get his third term. It's not a done deal at all. And I think he will have to make some major adjustments along the way in the next four years in order to achieve that. This is Merrick's Experts. My guest today is Frank Pieke, the new head of Merrick's, the Mercato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. Let's look at China and Europe a little bit. Uh, does Europe get China? Does uh, Europe understand China? That's an interesting question, of course. Uh, some people in Europe get China extremely well, and other people don't at all. And that has to do, I think, in part with the fact, which of course is, is fortunately getting less, that for Europe, China was until recently really far away, and it wasn't really here. In that sense, we're very different from the Americans, for whom China was always much closer and much more, they were much more engaged with China as a political entity, as an economy, uh, and so on. And Europe never was. It could sort of sit at a distance, be safe under the American safety umbrella, and not bother about China. So we could look at China in Europe very much from our own stereotypes, and simply apply those stereotypes whenever they seem to be fitting whatever we hear about China. Now we have reached a point that we can't live in stereotype anymore when it comes to China. We have to really look at what China here is for us, because China is now with us. It's part of our own societies, it's part of our own economies, it's part of our international environment in ways that had, have never been true before. And we have to then, and therefore, deal with China as it presents itself to us on the basis of our own interests. Because, you know, in Europe we have different actors, people have different interests, uh, some people are very much interested in uh, getting as many Chinese investments, for instance. On the other hand, you have those who are really alarmist about it, and yeah. it's sort of China is <coughs> buying up Europe, it's uh, gaining too much influence. That's exactly the point. 
And rather than saying that one of the two is right, we should allow for the possibility that both are right. If you are in a city like Athens or Duisburg, then China looks very, very different from when you are in a city like Berlin or a city like Paris or even Wolfsburg, I would say. There's no right and there's no wrong anymore because our interests are different and therefore also our picture and view of China are also very, very different. Now, you've said elsewhere that uh, here at Merricks you want to hear these different European voices and these different perspectives, if I understood you correctly. So which voices are missing currently? Which countries are out there from whom we're not hearing enough? There are a couple of things about that. Of course, Merricks being in Berlin naturally, almost inevitably, uh, takes a, a perspective from the center of Europe, right, to look at China. And also, at Merckx, we tend to, I think, more than perhaps is, is, is good for us, tend to go along with what the Americans think and the debates and discussions about China in, more broadly, the Anglo-Saxon world. Now, to a very large extent, of course, that's understandable because we are a Western continent, we have a natural connection and alliance with the United States and other Western and other democratic countries, and that is normal and good, and we should keep that. But we shouldn't simply go along with whatever the Americans say, because the Americans look at China from the perspective of a uh, superpower that is under threat. Um, So they see completely different things from us. We are not a superpower. We have to find a third way, as it were. There's one superpower to the west, there's a rising superpower to the east, and we should find ways of finding a a middle ground between them without committing ourselves too much to either of the two. And in fact, in the process, I would think we have to become also, perhaps not a superpower, but a power that that has to be reckoned with in order to be able to balance these two superpowers. So that means that in Europe we have to build up our own military capacity and our international relations capacity, independence and autonomy, both vis-à-vis the Chinese and vis-à-vis the Americans. Now, that voice, I think, needs more expression, but also within Europe, when you look at what China means for a country like uh, Greece or Poland or Serbia, which is not part of the EU but very much part of, of, of Europe, or Spain or Italy, China is just a different thing. It is in some countries more of a threat, but in other places it's more of a sort of a necessary promise. And yet in other places it's a country or a power that promised things but is now letting you down again. And that's Poland, for instance, to a certain extent. Serbia, a country just mentioned, is a country that is becoming very rapidly, heavily dependent on China in all kinds of different fields. Not because they wanted that so much, but because we have left them by the wayside in Europe. We have not allowed them into the EU, and they basically have been reduced to the state of the beggars of Europe. And there's only one place to go to for them, and that is China, unfortunately. When you look at Italy, the debate about China is much more than in Germany, or in Holland, or the UK, is defined by the presence of very large numbers of Chinese immigrants who've actually been there since at least the early 80s, but the numbers are now so large, and of course they are added to the very large numbers of other immigrants, that China and the immigration debate and the asylum debate cannot be disentangled from each other anymore. So they see China in a completely different way again. Uh, I think in Spain and Portugal again, they look very much favorably to China in terms of investments, 
but they also see, see things that might be a little bit threatening because China is investing very heavily, for instance, now in a Chinese investment zone in Morocco, just across the Mediterranean. In Spain, they may not particularly like that so much. So they, they take a very balanced view. In Portugal, they're much more positive. In Greece, they see, of course, on the one hand, that they need China more than ever before. On the other hand, they're also beginning to understand that they have to negotiate with China a little bit more. So China looks different in different places. And what we have to do at Merck's is work with partners in these other countries or regions to see what their view is of China and incorporate that in our own research and our own projects. Now, you already mentioned um, investment, of course, and what uh, China means to different countries in Europe. But, of course, one of the big strengths of Merrick's has always been analyzing China itself. Now, uh, when it comes to uh, research on China, where would you want to put the focus on in the coming months, maybe years? I'm very glad you asked that question, because one of the things I really want to ensure in Merrick's is that we continue to keep the balance right about our research. Because our strength, our core strength, is our understanding of China itself. That, of course, means that we have to continue our work on the Communist Party. That is something that goes without saying, and also the Chinese economy, how that develops. But in addition, I also want to look more at uh, what we call here in-house now China's future. So what does China's future society look like? What are the things that will make China an exciting and interesting place to be at and to engage with, say, in five or ten years. So one of the things we focus on, we'll focus on very much is the digital component to that. So the, the use of artificial intelligence, uh, the digitization of governance, but also the digitization of uh, consumerism, uh, the digitization of all kinds of other things in which areas China often is far ahead of what we have here in Europe and which are beginning to make China a different society from, from our own, a more, a more modern society, in fact. Just like Japan in the 1980s was a more modern society than the European one, China is now becoming, in certain respects, a more modern society than, than our own. So, a lot to look forward to under the new Merrick's head, Frank Pieke. Frank, thanks a lot for talking to me. That was Frank Pieke since the beginning of August, head of the Merrick's Institute for China Studies in Berlin. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for listening. Join us again soon and bye for now. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.